Good morning. I have to be the, the meanie. Say, stop having fun. No, not really. It's great to see the, uh, all of you just talking and fellowshipping one to another and uh, just building those relationships. Uh, fantastic. It's good. Great to be with you this morning, and uh, my privilege and uh, in all humility to come before you and bring the word this morning. And uh, it's always humbling and a privilege to bring the word of God. Uh, but specifically this morning, I feel even more humbled just as we continue on in Proverbs. Uh, we're tweaking just a little bit. Tim has the last three weeks done such a great job building the foundation of wisdom and uh, looking at wisdom. Now we're going to look at uh, some specific aspects of our life of where wisdom is needed. And so today we're going to take our first swing and talk about wisdom that's needed in marriage. Anybody agree? Sure, why not, right? All right, anybody want to come up here and help me? Why not? Because you all know it all already, right? Uh, wisdom in marriage. So we think of, of wisdom in marriage and looking at Proverbs specifically, um, this is what I don't want to do this morning. I don't want to keep it on the surface. I don't want to just look at Proverbs wisdom and, and say, we're going to look at a few quick, easy steps for behavior modification, all right? So husbands, don't be a knucklehead, right? Wives, don't nag. All right, amen. Let's go. We're done. Worship team, come on up, right? No, but we're tempted to do that sometimes as we look at Proverbs. We're, we're, we're tempted to keep it on the surface level, uh, maybe not intentionally, but it happens because... <clears throat> We look at a Proverbs, and you may have already had this run through your mind this morning, right? Hey, I know what Proverbs has to say about marriage. Proverbs 21.9, better to live on the corner of a roof than to share a house with a nagging wife. <laughs> Am I right? It was funnier in the first service. <laughs> All right, I won't even bring up the second one then. But that is only an example of what we're not doing this morning. We're not here to simply say, wives don't nag. Husbands, don't be a knucklehead. Uh, it's, it's much deeper than that because what is at stake in our marriages, what that marriage relationship represents touches right at the heart of who we are. Uh, it touches right at the heart of our relationship with God. And so we're going to focus in on that. Open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 5. And we're going to use this as our text, as our base, as our foundation uh, to look at what it has to say to us about wisdom, the need for it, and our relationship, uh, not only with each other, uh, but also in our relationship with God. I also want to put this disclaimer out before we read the passage, and that is as we read through Proverbs chapter 5, you'll see that it, it definitely comes through the lens of uh, like a father speaking to a son or an instructor speaking to a student, and there is a decidedly male uh, communication here. Uh, that's fine. That's good. But what I don't want to have happen is that, okay, wives, you sort of tune out and say, okay, yeah, just as we laughed about the, or, or didn't laugh, I should say, at the proverb about the nagging wife, uh, I don't want wives, I don't want you to think that, oh, this only pertains to husbands and pay attention. No, because this is universal truth. The warnings that it is given uh, to us, uh, it's across all genders, uh, warning for wisdom and to stay away from sin and temptation and folly. Also, if you're single this morning, 
Uh, now's not the time to, oh, message on marriage. All right, grocery list and to-do list. That's what we're doing for the next 30 minutes. Nope, uh, sorry, not letting you off the hook either as well. Because I want you to look at this passage through the lens of, sure, one day you may be a future spouse, but also, again, throughout the New Testament, our relationship with God is referred and compared to a marriage relationship. He is our bridegroom. Uh, And so look at it through that perspective as well of, of how do I relate to this as just a follower of Christ in my relationship with him? If you're here this morning and you've been divorced, and you may even be here this morning and you're remarried, I want to speak to you as well and communicate what's not being said this morning. Uh, If you've been divorced or or remarried, sometimes when there's a message on marriage, uh, we can automatically pick up some guilt or a feeling of shame and feel like I'm being condemned. We're not doing that here today. Uh, What we are doing is saying what is most important is today, is right here, right now, of walking with you towards the healthiest relationship with Christ that you can possibly have. Uh, Of today, being right here, right now, saying we want to invest in you and help your marriage relationship to be the healthiest and strongest that it can be in the Lord uh, as well. So those are some some important foundation points uh, as we start and jump into Proverbs chapter 5. It says this, My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen closely to my understanding, so that you may maintain discretion and your lips safeguard knowledge. Though the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey, and her words are smoother than oil, in the end she's as bitter as wormwood and as sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps head straight to Sheol. She doesn't consider the path of life. She doesn't know that her ways are unstable. So now, sons, listen to me, and don't turn away from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Don't go near the door of her house. Otherwise, you will give up your vitality to others and your years to someone cruel. Strangers will drain your resources, and your hard-earned pay will end up in a foreigner's house. At the end of your life, you will lament when your physical body has been consumed, and you will say, how I hated discipline and how my heart despised correction. I didn't obey my teachers or listen closely to my instructors. I am on the verge of complete ruin before the entire community. Drink water from your own cistern, water flowing from your own well. Should your springs flow in the streets, streams in the public squares? They should be for you alone and not for you to share with strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. A loving deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. Why, my son, would you lose yourself with a forbidden woman or embrace a wayward woman? For a man's ways are before the Lord's eyes, and he considers all his paths. A wicked man's iniquities will trap him. He will become tangled in the ropes of his own sin. He will die because there is no discipline and be lost because of his great stupidity. This is Proverbs chapter 5. Again, as we look at this, and specifically for marriage, what does the world say about marriage? 
The world says that my marriage satisfaction, my fulfillment in my marriage depends on what I compare it to, on maybe someone else's marriage or what else is happening around me or what I see on TV, movies, etc., etc., blah, blah, blah. The list is long of the things that we can compare ourselves to and even our marriages to. But the Lord says this, that satisfaction and fulfillment in our marriage is commitment. It is a commitment. That's what we're looking looking at. Right off the top, we need to say that most problems in our marriage are not caused by what happens in your marriage. Sure, there are some stressful situations and moments, but most problems in our marriage are not caused by what happens Most problems are revealed or sprout because of what we have carried with us and brought into our marriage, what we have brought with us. And it's because along the way, we have attached ourselves to different things. We have attached ourselves in our quest of looking for significance, looking for meaning, looking for something that will fulfill us. We attach ourselves to maybe certain behaviors or habits or hang-ups and say, this is what will bring me satisfaction and fulfillment. And we never lay those down. We never drop those and bring those into our marriage so that I no longer, or I never have in some cases, looked at my spouse as my partner, as a place where I find fulfillment or satisfaction. I'm still holding on to the thing that I've carried with me into my marriage, into my relationship. And where will that end up? No place good. And so Proverbs starts off with this, uh, again, this plea from a father, this plea from an instructor, plea from a wise one to say, pay attention to the words of wisdom. Why? Not just because you'll be tested on it later. He's saying, please pay attention to the words of, of, of wisdom because this is where you find life. This is where truth resides, and this is the only thing that can save you from destruction. So he says, pay attention to wisdom, listen closely to my understanding, so that you maintain discretion and your lips safeguard knowledge. And he gives us four warnings. And we can see this as almost a progression of what happens if we continue to turn our back on wisdom. If we plug our ears and ignore it and say, no, I still, I, I got a pretty good feel of, of what's going on. I can, you know, figure this out on my own. I don't really need this wisdom. What happens is the first step of progression is that we actually poison ourselves. It doesn't seem like it at first because it says the, you know, equation is the, the words may seem like honey and go down so easy, but it turns into wormwood. And wormwood even sounds gross, right? Like wormwood, Ooh, that can't be something positive. And you're right, it's not. It's a bush or a shrub that uh, when, I don't know what the process is, but turned into a liquid or something to consume, it is always something extremely bitter. We've all had foods or a drink or something that was bitter that we've thought, ooh, this is terrible, and we've tried not to spew it out of our mouth and we've powered it down. This isn't the case with wormwood. What it's talking about is literal poison. This is what we do when we turn our back on wisdom. We're literally drinking poison. We continue to turn our back 
we discover that uh, the, the, the path of, of lies or the path of temptation still turning towards that is like a knife cutting us and mutilating us, cutting us off from what we would like to connect to or a path of health. It says the words are sharper than a two-edged sword. Continuing to turn our back on wisdom, we are now feet firmly planted on a path to destruction a path that has a sure destination and it is not a destination that any of us would choose or say, hey, I'd like to go there. This seems like a proper and wonderful goal for my life or my marriage. Uh, let's you know, make it as rocky as possible. No one says that. But turning our back on wisdom, this is where we place our feet and put ourselves on a course uh, for this destination. And lastly, continuing still still continuing to turn our back to wisdom, we become completely disoriented. The scripture says she doesn't know that her ways are unstable. Have you ever been disoriented? Anyone suffered from vertigo? Not a pleasant thing. Not being able to tell which way is up. Or if you jumped into a pool and done a flip and you're not quite sure, Ooh, where am I? Which way, which way is up? And you sort of have to float back to the surface. Disorientation is, is not a good feeling, but uh, it's saying turning our back on wisdom, you don't even know you're disoriented. Isaiah chapter 5 describes it this way. Isaiah 5.20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for, dark, light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Completely backwards and upside down. And being completely upside down and disoriented, not a good thing. Imagine how much worse it is to be completely disoriented on a path of destruction and somehow rationalizing and convincing yourself, this is a good thing. Everything's fine here. Everything's a-okay. Those are the warnings against turning our back on wisdom. Our only response to these four warnings are to remove and replace Verse 7 and 8, specifically verse 8, look what it says. Uh, the instruction is keep your way far from her. Don't go near the door of her house. Keep your way far from her, meaning remove yourself from the situation. If you are in a scenario where wisdom is telling you this is no good, remove yourself from it. If you are open and willing to uh, just take hold of and address your own vulnerabilities, to say, I'm vulnerable here, and uh, I've got a weak spot for, for this potential temptation, right? Remove yourself from the situation. This can and should be drastic. I'm trying to get in better shape, you know, running some more, and uh, you know, just being more active. And every now and then, uh, someone brings in Lamar's to the office. And we walk in the office, or I walk in the office, and you walk in, and to get to our own individual offices, you have to cut through the conference room. And so you're walking through the conference room. This is what goes on in my head. And out of the corner of my eye, I see this bright yellow box of happy goodness. What's going on here? You know? That would be awesome, that would be wonderful, but is it wise? No, uh-uh, no sir. And so there have been days where I literally had to walk a different way to get to my office, right? Kind of funny, but, and, and 
kind of a, a small, lighthearted illustration, but it's the same thing with sin in our lives, right? Same thing with maybe some things that we have attached ourselves to that we've picked up looking for meaning, looking for significance, looking for fulfillment that is a long way from wisdom. We need to remove ourselves from the situation and go a different way. We can laugh about donuts in the donut box, but what does it look like at work? If we're in a situation where there's temptation from another person, that we're being tempted to maybe start up or maybe a relationship has already started up with someone in, in the office or in our workplace, would we be so drastic as to say, I'm going to do something about this and I will even find another job if that's what it takes? We can sort of re, re, recoil from that and, and, and buck up against that thinking, well, why would we do that? No, I've got, you know, I've got a a family to provide for and, you know, a standard of living to maintain. My friends, what is most important? Maintaining a certain standard of living or protecting and nurturing your marriage and your family? That's the standard of living that we are to be about. To say what comes first is not my material standard of living. What comes first is protecting and nurturing my family in my spouse. That's the standard of living uh, that I want to maintain and fight for and go crazy for. Scripture tells us that if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eyes cause you to sin, pluck them out. Remove and replace. Wisdom's words sometimes require drastic action on our part. If we don't, if we say, no big deal, have this image of like swimming with a boat anchor. Anyone ever tried that? A fun thing to do is go on YouTube, and I don't know why, I don't know how I went down this bunny trail, but, but look for like runaway anchor drops sometime. It is amazing. These big, gigantic, ocean-going vessels with these anchors that probably would be bigger than this platform, and the links on the chain for these anchors are just enormous, more than, you know, we could ever pick up individually, and it would probably take a hundred of us to, to try and pick one up. And seeing that drop into the ocean with such force and just the sound of metal clanging on metal, thinking that I'm just going to, you know, sling that over my shoulder and head for shore, we'll be fine. No, it's ridiculous to think that that is, ap you know, that that is somehow realistic or somehow possible. Turning my back on wisdom's words is doing exactly that, saying, I've got this anchor, I'm going to swim, I'll be fine. It's not going to happen. Right? Otherwise, <clears throat> continuing, um, verse 9, it uses that word otherwise. It tells us what's going to happen uh, if we uh, continue to go near the door of her house or if we continue to just dance right on the very edge of, of temptation and sin. You will give up your vitality to others and your years to someone cruel. Strangers will drain your resources and your hard-earned pay will end up in a foreigner's house. At the end of your life, you will lament when your physical body has been consumed. On it goes, saying to us, you will burn yourself to the ground. My illustration I like to use is an Eskimo hunting wolves. An Eskimo hunts a wolf not by sitting out in the cold. That would be crazy, right? I mean, there's a game on in my igloo. 
I can't sit out in the cold. One person thought it was, thanks. All right. No. An Eskimo hunts a wolf and takes care of the wolf problem by taking a knife, a very sharp knife, and dipping it in blood, maybe from a whale or a seal that they've previously killed, and then letting it freeze. Dipping it again, letting it freeze. So basically, it is a blood popsicle. Instead of a wooden stick, it's a very sharp knife. And he anchors it in the ice and snow. Sooner or later, the wolf comes along, smells the blood, and says, yes, I absolutely must have that. I have to have that. I'm going to have that. You're not stopping me. And tastes the blood on the popsicle and says, yes, please, I will have some more. And goes and goes and licks and licks till eventually it melts the blood off of the popsicle stick knife uh, and exposes the blade, the sharp blade, and is now licking and tasting blood, but not realizing he is cutting his own tongue and tasting his own blood. Worked into a frenzy, the wolf will shred his own tongue and literally bleed to death right there in the snow, never moving from that spot. What does it look like when we are disoriented by our sin? We are that wolf saying, I've got this. This is what I want. This is what I have to have. This is what I need. And on and on we go, shredding ourselves and shredding our our tongues and dying in the, the process. Our attachment to sin renders us unable to attach to God, most importantly. We're unable to connect with God when we are uh, just letting the, the desire for our sin go crazy and thinking that I've got everything handled. When I'm disoriented by my sin, these are the things that I believe. This is how we can test ourselves, that we believe and begin to rationalize and minimalize our own sin, saying, I'm exempt from Scripture's warning. I'm immune from sin's impact. I'm in control of my pattern of behavior. And when I do all of these things, my way of interacting with other people and even those closest to me is to to lie to myself and to other people. And that becomes the the pattern of my life. That's what disorientation looks like. Right? All of this leading us to the place where we're only left with regret. Verses 11 through 14, but it will be too late. We will have turned our back on wisdom, connected ourselves and attached ourselves to anything and everything other than the truth of the gospel, set our feet on a path to destruction and disoriented ourselves to the point of of even killing ourselves, burning ourselves to the ground. Maybe you feel like that this morning in many different ways. Maybe personally in your relationship with God, Is this where you're at? Feeling like I'm burnt to a crisp. In your marriage, maybe your marriage relationship, you look at that and say, man, we are burnt to a crisp. I don't know what's going on. This morning I'm here to tell you that in response to all of this attachment that has led to brokenness, of all of this attachment that's basically connecting ourselves to the ship's anchor and trying to swim, it doesn't have to be this way that there is a way out, that there is a new pattern to establish and connect with. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, it says, The wise person should not boast in his wisdom, 
The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. It's okay for us to say, I don't got this. I don't have this. I've attached myself to things that are pulling me down and pulling me under. I need help. And we can uh, take joy and, and pride in the Lord that he is big enough, strong enough, capable enough to pull us out of wherever we're at. Whatever pattern we're in personally, to pull us out. Wherever our relationship is that we feel like not happening, it is possible. God can work through those things as he works in us individually first. All joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment are not found in something that we search out and say that we have to have and have to need and and that we need. They're found first and only in the Lord. This is the words of wisdom. God's plan for me is that I would be reconciled to him. That he would... Uh, or that I would come to him with all of my attachments that I've connected myself to and saddled myself with and lay them down before him and that he would bring reconciliation. God's plan for my marriage is exactly the same. And what is that? As we look at marriage and the wisdom of marriage, as it says, enjoy marriage in Proverbs chapter 5, it's also important for us to establish what is God's definition and pattern for marriage. And we find that in Genesis chapter 2 verses 24 and 25, and it is also referenced in Matthew 19, 4 through 6. As God, at the very beginning of time, creation of the world, as he created Adam and Eve, there was no suitable helper for Adam that was found among the animals. And so he brought forth Eve and made her the perfect complement and made them the perfect complement for each other. He said, it is for this reason that a man will leave his father and mother, be united together, become one flesh, and they will be naked and have no shame. The Matthew 19 passage is Jesus, when he was asked about marriage, he spoke directly back to this passage in Genesis. And so we see here, he said the exact same thing. And so we see that God's plan and pattern for marriage is consistent. It has not changed. It is still the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. So this is God's pattern for marriage. Leave, cleave, become one, and then naked and no shame. It is a glorious equation, a perfect picture of marriage, uh, and something that uh, is not something that's just written there and that we think about in some mystical way, like, boy, I wonder if that would ever happen. No, this is what God desires for you and can happen uh, in your own marriage, right? First, leave. How do we leave? What does that mean? What does that look like? Again, most problems in marriage are not caused by what happens in your marriage. They sprout from what has been brought with you into marriage. Meaning most likely something that I have not left behind and carried with me and brought with me, still holding it, nurturing it, whatever you want to use, we haven't left it behind. And so this picture of leave literally is very simple leave everything. We get married, we look at our spouse, 
we turn our back on everything that we've been connected to, everything that we've held on to saying, this is what makes me, me. This is my identity. This is who I am. We leave home, certainly physically. And in, um, you know, as it says in the, the passage, this is why a man, or, yeah, man leaves his father and mother. That aspect of leaving home in the Old Testament is huge because that represents your physical safety, your provision, everything. Saying, I'm leaving all that behind so I now can connect to my spouse as we start a life together. So in my marriage, have I left those things behind so that I am now able and available to cleave and to connect with and cling to my spouse? Some challenges... of leaving things behind or also uh, family. It's hard to leave family behind. We still want those connections. It's still good to have those connections. Family reunions, of course, the whole nine yards. Make the t-shirts, etc., etc. But when it comes to establishing your relationship together as husband and wife, you don't need to be calling mom or dad when there's an argument or a frustration to say, can you believe so-and-so? Can you believe they did this? Or... Yeah, you're right, Dad. He is worthless or knucklehead, blah, blah, blah. On it goes. We're leaving that behind, right? That's not healthy. We also leave behind our false identities. And false identities, what are you talking about? Anybody get married with glasses and a mustache, you know, those fake things? No, of course, it's absurd. But I want you to have that image as you think of false identities. They're absurd. But what are our own false identities? We construct images and we work hard to maintain those images of how I want you to look at me, right? And it's really not me, but it's who I want you to think I am. I've got to let that go. Because the harder I try and the more I cling to a false identity of of how I want you to see me, I'm actually doing the same thing to my spouse. I mean... Michelle really lucked out. I'm darn near perfect when she married me, so (laughs) didn't really have much to lay down. Is she here? (laughs) A brave question to ask after I've said it. No, that's, that's ridiculous. But yet, we still do it, right? We say, this is how I want you to see me, even my spouse, because uh, I'm afraid that I'll be rejected, or I'm afraid that you won't love me, or I'm afraid I won't be adequate or, or able to you know, measure up to what I've said, blah, 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 blah. And again, it goes back to the world saying fulfillment, satisfaction, all of that in our marriage comes from what we compare it to, and it's false. It's wrong. We have to leave those things behind. What does that look like in the biblical sense? John chapter 4, this beautiful picture of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. Your homework today is go home and read this whole passage and do a deeper study on this. I'm just going to blow through it really quick. But woman at the well looking for a drink, scandalous that Jesus would even be talking to her, and he puts his finger right on the sore spot, right on the heart issue of her brokenness, right on her false identity, and says, go and call your husband back. And it's quickly revealed that she's had multiple husbands, and this is the result, or this is the root of her shame and her her scorn and feeling disqualified and why she is at the well in the middle of the afternoon. On and on it goes, and sure, she didn't do things right. Yeah, absolutely. But Jesus' response to her is, 
to share with her the source of living water. And as, re- as she responds to that, all of those other things, all of those identities finally drop away and she comes to salvation. And her response to that is to run back to town and tell everyone that would ever listen, any ears that she could speak into and say in John 4.29, write that passage down, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And, and what's not written there is, and loved me anyway. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did and, and didn't kick me to the curb, who didn't run screaming from the scene, who didn't condemn me. This is what it looks like to leave and what we find in leaving in our spiritual relationship and our relationship with God, this beautiful picture uh, of, of acceptance, of healing, of, of wholeness. And so this is what I need to lay down so that God can work within me so that I can be a husband to Michelle. That she can be a, a wife to me. It's the same for you. What will I, or challenge yourself, what am I still holding on to that I haven't laid down yet that I think I have to have that, that I think makes me me? and not let Christ to deal with. What we find is this beautiful picture of when we finally lay those things down before the Lord, he doesn't condemn us, he restores us. He doesn't bring us through hard things to accuse us, to condemn us, to kick us to the curb. He brings us through hard things and deal with difficult things so that we can be made more into his image. And that's what we desire, that's what I desire to see in your relationship. We must leave so that we are able to cleave. There's no other way. The wisdom from Proverbs in this, in chapter 5, is verses 15 through 17. It says, Drink water from your own cistern, water flowing from your own well. Should your springs flow in the streets, streams in the public squares? They should be for you alone and not for you to share with strangers. Meaning, be refreshed with what God has blessed you with. Don't compare it to something else. Don't give it away to someone else. No, drink water from your own cistern. Be refreshed, be blessed with what God has blessed you with. So that's leave, cleave, means to fasten together, to connect together, and in the sense of an amalgamation type process, that significant of connecting, right? And this is a decision that is made every day where we say, I choose you on purpose every single day. In our relationship with our spouse, that means the first thing we do when our eyes pop open is look at our spouse and say, I choose you every single day on purpose. A relationship with God, we wake up and we're, again, we're tempted all the time to do things our own way or find some other mode or path to satisfaction and meaning. And we say to the Lord, God, I choose to follow you on purpose every single day. My first earthly priority, as we say to our spouse, is you over work, even over our family, even over our kids, even over what's undone around the house. I choose to you. I cleave to you. I cling to you. I want to connect with you. It's easier in the early days of our relationship, isn't it? So what changed? I mean, Michelle just doesn't look at me anymore with those googly eyes. It's okay. 
right? She says to me, you just never sweep me off my feet anymore when I look at you. Hard to believe, I know. I know, we can all say it out loud. But what's happening here, right? Well, it's the world defines love more by attraction than attachment. And we say the level of my attraction, the, the, the feeling of my attraction is what determines the level of my attachment or the feeling of, again, satisfaction and fulfillment. Erroneous, wrong. 1 Corinthians 13, the definition tells us love is patient, love is kind. It's not self-seeking, keeps no record of wrongs. 1 Corinthians 13 does not say love is a perfectly kept house. Love is always fresh breath and putting the seat down and make sure to spray after using the bathroom. Right? That's what love is. I mean, that's how I know if you love. No. Love is a decision every single day to say, I choose you on purpose all the time. The science of attraction, and this is where we fall to the lie, says this. We all, in different levels, depending on our age and point of our relationship, we all have dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine raging through our bodies, right? These are all chemicals, natural feeling makers, but they're all chemicals that we mistakenly use to indicate love for someone else. That as long as I'm feeling these good, happy feelings and warm fuzzies, then I know I'm in love with you. And if those feelings wane and I feel those percolations with someone else, I must love them now. It's not true. The feeling is, goes away. When those feelings go away, we think something is wrong with them, right? And we assign blame. We say, my spouse, they just don't do it for me anymore. And that's when we've fallen into the world's definition of love, that it's attraction and not attachment. Some recognizable patterns just to plug in and do some introspection in your own relationship. Some recognizable patterns of maybe you're starting to go down this route is, is if every single one of your conversations with your spouse is you always, you never. Starts off with those two phrases. You always fill in the blank. You never fill in the blank. This is where we remove and replace. So my challenge to you is this, remove that from your vocabulary and replace it with something else. How about replacing you always, you never with starting your conversations this week with thank you for fill in the blank or I like it when fill in the blank and see what happens, right? See what happens inside you and see what happens uh, for them in your relationship as well. These are the choices that we make when we say I'm going to cleave to my spouse because intimacy, and when we do this, we are actually creating and granting access to each other. I am giving you access into me, and we're creating access in the other person. And intimacy is achieved through access, not attraction, not a feeling. The proverb wisdom, the wisdom from Proverbs 5 is verse 18. It says, let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. Take pleasure in the wife of your youth. Think, think it through. Guys, I know it's hard for us sometimes to, to process through and to, to, to get in touch with what's going on deep down, but, 
But what do we enjoy about our spouses? Think back to the, the early days of our relationships, the things that you did together that you know, attracted you to her and enjoy those things because they're still there. Wives, same with your husbands. What is it about your husband that you enjoy, some things that you enjoy doing together that, that build that connectedness, that say, this is why I'm connecting to you, choosing you. Enjoy, take pleasure in the wife of your youth. So as we leave and we cleave, we become one. And oneness is being aware of and responding to the reality that everything I say or do, positively or negatively, will impact my spouse. It's a hard thing to to wrestle with and to appreciate the depths of, right? That every single thing, being one, means every single thing that I say or do will positively or negatively impact my spouse. Well, come on, man. That's pretty heavy. That's a lot. That's like all the time. Yes, agreed. That's exactly what it is saying and what we are trying to say. What we are trying to say. And so... Humanly, my reaction can be to that, to that sort of, you know, oh man, I feel like I'm being infringed upon. I, I need to have some me time. I need to have something that's just for me, right? I'm not saying don't go off and have a coffee or a tea by yourself or read a book quietly somewhere, not at all. No, I'm talking about the inward attitude that we have that we say, I have to hold on to this for me. Or, or that subtle little decision that we make in our relationship sometime of, I'm just not going to share this right now with my spouse. I'm just going to, you know, I've, I'll take care of it anyway, blah, 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 blah. Because what does that lead to? Inevitably, that leads to a feeling or an attitude or a behavior, a pattern of hiding from the other person. That I've got something to withhold from them and hide from them because, well, there's a thousand reasons why we do that. Thinking that we know better, I know better, we're just being selfish, on and on it goes but it ends up in the same place that I'm going to end up hiding something from my other person, from my spouse, from the other person. And then how easy it is for sin to enter in. And it is sin that we begin hiding, right? The first and oldest response to sin was to cover up and hide. And sin destroys oneness quicker than anything else. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, the first, the first response to sin was to, to run and hide. Right? And when we run and hide and when we have sin in our hearts, sin in our lives, and we're, we're hiding, how does leave, cleave, and become work, one work? Well, it doesn't. It's exactly the opposite. So instead of leaving, when I'm hiding, when I'm running, instead of leaving, I attach. I hold on to something and say, no, I have to have this. This is what makes me, me. I'm managing this. Instead of cleaving, instead of connecting, I resist, saying, no, I, I got to keep my distance. I got to have this little part of me. And instead of becoming one, I stay as one. I stay isolated and as an individual. I cannot be one when I am hiding. And it rips the legs right out from our relationship <clears throat> and any uh, progress towards intimacy and oneness that we are uh, striving for. The result of oneness is true intimacy, right? And oneness, uh, it literally is the physical union, the sexual part of a, a marriage relationship as well. And so the wisdom proverb here in verses 19 and 20, uh, where it says, starting in 18, the second half of 18, and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. 
a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. Married couples, don't withhold access from each other, right? Enjoy each other. Not only just in the things that you used to do, like go to a ball game or go out for coffee, but in this physical part of your relationship as well. It's right here in wisdom's words. And again, it's important to remember that, again, it's the oneness that is the significant part. It's the intimacy that is created here. It's not just the physical action. And so, guys, sometimes we get stuck in the thought that we're just working towards the physical interaction, right? And that's, yeehaw! It's being recorded. No. It's the connection, the intimacy part, the oneness part that is significant here. And that is the beautiful part of what God has created in this, in this relationship. So to you as a single, what do I say? And guys, that is a hard, hard message because the world has told us that we live in such a sexualized culture that the physical action of sex is all there is, and that's the be-all, end-all, and the pinnacle of, of relationship, and you should have that because, you know, that's what you want. That, no, not at all. Every single one of us, whether married or single, we're striving, we're looking for intimacy, for true intimacy, okay? We find it and it's expressed in a marriage relationship one way as a single, we're looking for intimacy and the best way I can say it is Psalm 37.4 when it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So the desire is this intimacy, this connection with other people that we can share with. And as we delight ourselves in the Lord first, he gives us the desires of our heart. We find that intimacy in other ways. It's not the physical action that is the be-all, end-all. It is the true intimacy that we find with other human beings in that connection part. So let's turn away and turn away from and turn towards wisdom's words and turn away from the lie that says uh, sex is the be-all, end-all and has has to occur. So we leave, we cleave, we are one, and the result of that is that there is nakedness and no shame. True intimacy in marriage is this, access. I can share with my spouse, my spouse can share with me all of my hopes, my dreams, my desires, my victories. I can also share all of my fears, my failures, my discouragement, my frustrations, all of it without rejection, right? That's what naked and no shame looks like. Most importantly, this is the message of the gospel, that wisdom's words are for me first. And again, this is where we're looking at the heart issue first, not just how to be a better husband, a better wife, but what is God saying to me? And he is saying to me that he looks at us already as we are naked and no shame. What does God not know about you? I can't think of anything, but I sure like to think that I'm hiding some things because I'm not proud of certain things. God knows all about those already. And the message and the invitation of the gospel is John 4.29, come see a man who told me everything I ever did and loved me anyway. Come see a man who knows every single thing about you. Come find Jesus who knows 
your deepest, darkest secret, the thing that you're most ashamed of and afraid of and wants you and is inviting you into relationship so that he can make you into the person he created you to be. As a spouse, this is how I become a husband that God created me to be. As a wife, this is how God creates and transforms you into a wife that he has created you to be that we leave what we have attached ourselves to, that we cleave to him, that we cleave to the gospel, recognize that we become one with him as we crucify ourselves, and that there is nakedness and no shame, that we find forgiveness, that we find uh, the healing power of the gospel. Christ has shown the light of wisdom on our calloused, adulterous attachments, and he has defeated sin. And the result is we have unencumbered access to God through Christ. What am I still clinging to? In my personal life, in my marriage, what have I not let go of? Let's think about that. As the worship team comes and as we worship in response to this, um, again, the invitation is the same. Uh, Christ will set us free that we leave, we cleave to him, uh, we become one, and there's naked and no shame. It's the pattern for us uh, in our marriages. It's the pattern for us in a relationship uh, to him as well. And then let that challenge us and change us this morning. Let's go ahead and stand.